The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, my guests are two renowned attorneys, Garo Ghazaryan and Karnik Kirkonyan, co-hosts of Frontlines Live and co-founders of Armenian Rights Watch. Here are some headlines from this morning and over the weekend. President Joe Biden has signed a flurry of executive orders, actions, and memorandums aimed at rapidly addressing the coronavirus pandemic and dismantling many of President Trump's policies. The 30 executive actions Biden has taken in the first days of his administration include halting funding for the construction of Trump's border wall, reversing Trump's travel ban targeting largely Muslim countries, imposing a mask mandate on federal property, ramping up vaccination supplies and requiring international travelers to provide proof of negative COVID-19 tests prior to traveling to the U.S. An army vet is accused by the FBI of conspiring in capital insurrection. Jessica Watkins is known in her Ohio hometown as an army veteran who runs a bar and set up a small self-styled militia, her boyfriend says, she created to help neighbors if tornadoes hit. The FBI says that she's a militant leader who traveled to Washington, D.C. and stormed the U.S. Capitol, encouraging others to do the same. According to the Wall Street Journal, former President Donald Trump pushed the Department of Justice to directly ask the Supreme Court to invalidate President Joe Biden's election win. The effort was part of Trump's pressure on the Justice Department in his final weeks in office to overturn his election loss, which also included plans to fire then-Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, with a relatively unknown Justice Department lawyer who was willing to use the department to support Trump's false claims about election fraud in Georgia. The effort ultimately failed as Trump appointees in the Department of Justice refused to file the lawsuit, according to the journal. The United States has recorded 25 million coronavirus cases reaching the threshold Saturday afternoon, according to a New York Times database. The official tally works out to be about one in every 13 people in the country, or about 7.6% of the population. As a result, deaths in the country have also risen, with more than 414 linked to the virus. That's one death out of roughly 800 people in the country. The coronavirus pandemic in the United States has raged almost uncontrollably for so long that millions of vaccinations will not be able to stop the spread of the disease unless people continue to wear masks and maintain social distancing measures until midsummer or later, according to a new model by scientists at Columbia University. The arrival of highly effective vaccines in December lifted hopes that they would eventually slow or stop the spread of the disease through the rest of the population. But vaccines alone are not enough, the model shows. And if precautions like working remotely, limiting travel, and wearing masks are relaxed too soon, it could mean millions more uh, would be infected 
and thousands more would die. President Biden signed two executive orders on Friday, one of which would increase federal food assistance and streamline the delivery of stimulus checks as the president attempts to stabilize the economy without congressional assistance amid the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. President Biden has proposed a $1.9 trillion relief plan to Congress, but it is unclear whether it will garner enough Republican support to pass on a bipartisan basis. Until Congress is able to pass another relief bill, President Biden's actions are intended as stopgap measures to stabilize the economy. On Tuesday, the city of West Hollywood passed a resolution to recognize the independent Republic of Artsakh. West Hollywood's five council members voted unanimously to recognize Artsakh, joining other cities around the globe that have done so already. I am happy to say that this was an initiative that I asked my friend and West Hollywood council member Seppi Shine to spearhead and sponsor. Council member Shine is an Iranian-American attorney an exceptional human rights and social justice advocate and has been following the developments in Artsakh and Armenia. With Councilmember Shine's sponsorship, Mayor Lindsay Horvath co-sponsored the resolution. For more than three decades, West Hollywood has been one of the most influential small cities in the nation. No other city of its size has had a greater impact on the national progressive public policy agenda. I would like to thank all five West Hollywood council members, especially council member Shine for sponsoring the resolution and helping to make my dream a reality. And Mayor Horvath, who has always been an ally of the Armenian community and for co-sponsoring the resolution. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about what we do as a community, a global community, citizens, to help one another uh, when a catastrophe occurs. Also at the cover government level, federal, state, local, and if that help is sufficient, if, it's, um, if it really addresses the needs. For example, I've, I know a couple of restaurants that went out of business because of COVID-19. And a friend of mine who has a restaurant, his is probably going to shut down at the end of the month. Now, he's been working 14, 15 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, trying to stay afloat. He has tried to get some of the aid that was offered. And for the most part, they didn't come through. And, you know, that can be blamed on, frankly, the Trump administration and, and how they handled COVID-19. Uh, I don't need to get into the details on that. Most of you know about it. But also, aside from the government and the aid that could or could not come, I've also noticed that some landlords have not been willing to work with their tenants like you know, retail stores and restaurants and such. And I do understand that not all landlords are affluent and some landlords have, uh, you know, their own mortgages to pay and they have to sort of take care of themselves as well. But I also know landlords who are extremely affluent with, you know, multiple properties that are paid off and, uh, and yet they won't, they won't budge at any level and they have evicted their tenants. Uh, I don't understand that um, because I think most of us, and I think you'd relate, it's 
you know, sometimes we're in a tight position financially, but yet if we see someone that needs, you know, $3 or 5 or 10 um, we say, oh, you know, what the heck, uh, you know, that's not going to kill me. And I think most people are like that, but it seems to me that some who are in a, in, in a very good position to help and to see that businesses don't fail are just uh, very, you know, they just, it's just apathy for them. There's no... There's no sense of community. There's no sense of that this is a really unprecedented historic time and we all have to sacrifice and we all have to, we have to let go of some things. And if, you know, certain landlords, if they were willing to reduce their lease for temporarily for a few months or perhaps, you know, give a lot more time for someone to uh, get caught up that these restaurants, these retail stores wouldn't have to go out of business. I don't want to name names, but, you know, there's a famous landlord uh, who has dozens and dozens of properties, and one after another, his tenants are being evicted because of what's happening with COVID, and this landlord is in a position that he could be flexible with people. So it's just really about philanthropy. You know, we sometimes hear... A billionaire who has donated, let's say, 100, 100 million to a cause and such and think, wow, that's really generous. And it is. Uh, no one has to be benevolent. No one has to give anything away. It's a choice. But when you think about the scale, when you think about, let's say, a billionaire is worth like, you know, 40 billion and they give away 100 million to UCLA, that's not a whole lot for them. But there are people who will donate three, four, five percent of their monthly income to to charities. So I just hope that going forward, we are a little more flexible and we are a little bit more generous because the, you know, people are hurting, our friends are hurting, our neighbors, our colleagues, and all of that also hurts us. We may not see it or think it or feel it, but it does. And especially in the long term, restaurant industry in Southern California has taken a huge hit, you know, on top of many other industries. And on that note, KPFK, this, you know, incredible, incredible institution that I'm proud to call home for my show that stands for independent media that's commercial free, that is not at the beck and call of sponsors who will dictate content. You know, KPFK needs a lot of help too right now. And, you know, a lot of you have... You know, you've been sustaining members, you've given a lot and volunteered and such. But this is a kind of a defining moment when we really need to be all hands uh, on deck and just maybe do a little bit more than what's comfortable, maybe do a little bit more than we have before. I know some of you have already done that. But for all that, to all that who are listening, this is, KPFK is really a gem. It is the strongest signal west of the Mississippi. It reaches 18 million households. It is, uh, it's really an incredible institution uh, that's struggling right now. And, and I hope that those that are connected to foundations and know of grants and such would help and would, would come aboard and, or just to donate. And you can do that on KPFK's website, which is kpfk.org. So there it is, my let's get blunt moment, uh, talking about just helping people and helping businesses and being a community during this unprecedented moment in our, in our history and in our, for our nation. 
so that we all come out of it. <laughs> well, we're all affected, but hopefully not, not too injured. So that's it. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. My guests today are renowned attorneys Garo Ghazaryan and Karnik Karkonian. Garo Ghazaryan is a criminal defense attorney. He is a former chairman and current council member of the Board of Governors of the Armenian Bar Association, as well as co-chair of its Armenian Rights Watch Committee. Garnik Karkonian is an international lawyer and litigator. He leads the international and federal practice groups at Kirkonian Dajani LLC, focusing on complex litigation matters, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act litigation, the Alien Tort Claims Act, and commercial sanctions regime matters. He's a member of the Board of Governors of the Armenian Bar Association, as well as the co-chair of its Armenian Rights Watch. Both gentlemen are co-hosts of the popular show Frontlines Live. Good morning, Garo and Karnik. Welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. Very good. Thank you, Vic. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Vic. It's a pleasure to be here, and good morning to you. It's a pleasure for me. I really uh, appreciate that you took the time. You're both attorneys. You're both Armenian-American. And uh, despite the fact that the media sort of has, for the most part, ignored a genocide that's been happening halfway around the world, and continues to plague Armenians. You two are in the middle of it, if you will. So I wanted to bring your voice to our audience and your expertise and sort of get a take of what's happened, uh, what went wrong, where we are now. But what I'll do is I'll start with, if one of you will just tell us, assuming that people who are listening may not be familiar or if they have heard something, it's, you know, they're confused about what happened uh, since September 27th of last year. If you let us know, how did this happen? What was the background and where we are now? Karnik is the international lawyer, so I'll defer to Karnik to give a very concise summary. Go ahead, Karnik. Sure. Um, so I think that, you know, to, to look at what happened, uh, clearly, obviously, the, uh, the major... Um, Overture here was the was the was the military aggression by Azerbaijan, coupled uh, with assistance and really uh, command and control assistance from from Turkey uh, against the the Republic of Artsakh, the Armenians of Artsakh, indigenous Armenians that lived in in Artsakh, which is a region that is uh, in between the Republic of Armenia and Azerbaijan, which was handed over to the Azeri to under administrative control of the Azeris during uh, during Stalin. Um, so really what we're seeing is, uh, what we saw starting in September 27th was an attempt at ethnic cleansing to remove Armenians by force, by military aggression from the lands that they've inhabited and, and lived on and prayed on. And, uh, you know, there is a religious dimension, of course, because, you know, Armenians are, uh, have a long uh, tradition of Christianity on those lands, in fact. Um, and what we saw was uh, was really a globalization, a regionalization, better uh, is a better way to put it, of, of the conflict. Uh, where Azerbaijan and Turkey had imported jihadists from northern Syria to wage war uh, on the on the territory against uh, against Armenians, where Turkish drones were used uh, and kind of fifth uh, generation military technology. Uh, was used to literally hunt down uh, Armenians, uh, hunt down Armenians on the on the battlefield as well as civilians. There was uh, in 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 a ridiculous amount of indiscriminate civilian shelling that took place over the 44 day 44 day 
uh, war. And in the end, uh, what we saw was the uh, involvement of uh, Russian troops in order to stop the uh, to stop the bloodshed, and the uh, Azerbaijanis taking a significant amount of of territory, and that has created a a really uh, untenable and somewhat uh, nerve-wracking security situation. Uh, it, the, the war itself was uh, fueled by anti-Armenian hatred, hate speech, uh, and an agenda of ethnic cleansing that really reaches far, as far back, uh, quite frankly, as the, as the Ottoman and, and post-Ottoman uh, attempts at, uh, at genocide of the Armenians uh, from the, uh, during 1915. So this is, a, this is a long story. It's a long story, but has a common narrative and a theme that is really played out in real time under our watch, under the global community's awareness. And, uh, and, and I think that that's, uh, you know, to really understand the roots of the conflict, one has to look back to this constant effort by, by Turkey, Turks, and now Azerbaijan as well, to ethnically cleanse Armenians uh, from the region. And what Karnig is referring to, Vic, is that, you know, this against this backdrop of uh, and background of a state-sponsored anti-Armenian violence and hate speech uh, led by uh, the so-called president of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, uh, you know, and despite having been condemned by the European Court of Human Rights, Aliyev of Azerbaijan has continued to fuel the ongoing conflict as well as well-documented evidence of cultural genocide and at least 100,000, and that's two-thirds of the population, uh, which is made up of 150,000 Armenians. Uh, 100,000 of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, as uh, it's referred to um, in international circles, and it's Arsakh in Armenian. Uh, the Armenian population there has been forced to flee uh, out of their homes since even the so-called ceasefire that took place, one cannot help but wonder, you know, even rhetorically, how much higher the threshold of unbearable persecution has to be in order uh, to warrant a recognition of Arsakh or, uh, you know, the remedial secession over, or another intervention by the uh, international community, whether it be the OSCE Minsk group made up of United States, Russia and France, the United Nations or others. And it should be, you know, I'll say this, not only the 44 days of war from September 27th to November 9th of 2020 was rife with reports of the use of inherently indiscriminate munitions, chemical weapons, and Syrian and other mercenaries that Carnegie referred to, but there is now mounting evidence that since the ceasefire came into effect, Acts of torture, mutilation, executions, and enforced disappearances uh, are continuing to take place against Armenians, Armenians prisoners of war, who are still in captivity, as well as civilians who chose to remain in their homeland, in their ancestral centuries-old homeland, or those who even uh, tried to return after the ceasefire uh, back to the region, only to face persecution. I could go on, but go ahead. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a great, um, excellent introduction by both of you. Very dense, a lot of information. This is the Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with renowned attorneys Garo Khazarian and Karnik Kirkonian. Of course, I'm very familiar with what's been 
happening. And it's, uh, as Karnik, I think, said, it's very layered. It's very complicated. One would have to really know the history uh, of this. In some ways, it's sort of the continuation of the Armenian genocide. It happened uh, around 1915 by the Ottoman Empire. Um, Erdogan, it wasn't too long ago, last year, during a speech, he basically alluded to the fact that he wants to eradicate Armenians from, from the region. It's part of a, a larger pan-Turkic um, aspiration for Erdogan, who's also been creating trouble in Libya and Syria and uh, Eastern Mediterranean with Cyprus and Greece. One of the things that you mentioned is um, how there was not much of an intervention from international groups. We thought that the world had changed and we were at a different place. And Armenia has certainly been a member of the United Nations, the Council of Europe and such. And also, of course, the OSCE's Minsk group has been moderating with uh, Azerbaijan since uh, 1994, being Russia, France, and uh, the U.S. My question is this. What would have been the ideal action or reaction of the international community and which bodies when this occurred on September 27th? You know, I can jump in here uh, real quickly on that, Vic, and I think that that's a really, really important question. And I think that in order to really kind of understand what could have been done or let's say should have been done, I think people have to understand what the trajectory of international humanitarian law was, what international law was prior to this conflict, and the regression that occurred because of inaction mainly from Europe. And let me just say, the idea of human rights and human, international humanitarian law transcends territorial borders. And I think what we saw in this conflict was inaction, the, the inaction from Europe to protect that the inertia or the movement of international uh, international human rights law in uh, to, to move to the to the supreme position that it really should it has it has that that basis in rhetoric it has that basis in case law but unfortunately at this time in this incident we 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 lost as as international lawyers and particularly in Europe and across the world lost an opportunity to really say that yes human rights the the, the rights of individuals to to, to govern for self-determination, for, uh, for the right to live on their indigenous lands and to, to, uh, to utilize their culture on those lands, was sacrificed really in a, in, a, in a really kind of grotesque fashion because, like you said, the OSC Minsk Group was trying to resolve the issue by peaceful means. What we saw here was an, was an oblique affront to that by Aliyev, who frankly said, the president of Azerbaijan, who frankly said that He's going to solve the issue by military means. And it's about territorial integrity, uh, arbitrary territorial integrity that was granted to him by Stalin, as I said, uh, 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 the territory itself allowed, uh, granted to Azerbaijan by Stalin so that there was a, there's an arbitrariness to that. But it was a real opportunity for the international community to step forward and say, you know what, we do not resolve issues like this by military force. Aggression is not the answer to, to resolution. What it is, is the peaceful resolution, which had been taking place for 27 years, but it was unsatisfactory to, to Aliyev. And what he did at that point was take advantage of the situation, take advantage of the alliances that he had built, this pan-Turkic uh, alliance that he had created with Erdogan, and tried to use military force. And really what that did is it regressed the movement of human rights and our understanding of human rights, because it put it in a secondary role. It said that, you know, 
war and and force is a way to solve problems uh, in the international community. What the what the European uh, what the European states should have done or could have done, or for, quite frankly, what anybody could any, any other state could have done, was to recognize Artsakh in the middle of the war to say, you know what, we are going to recognize the independence of Artsakh. We are going to recognize its sovereignty as a way to show the international community that force is not a mechanism to resolve international disputes uh, or dis uh, any type of self-determination type disputes. Yeah. The international com community did that in Kosovo. They had no problem doing it in Kosovo, but they failed sure. to do it here. I want to come uh, back Karnik, to that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I want to add to what Karnik said. You know, if there was any doubt in the period leading up to uh, the Declaration of Independence of Nagorno-Karabakh, by the inhabitants of Nagorno-Karabakh, the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh. And if, and, and if there was any doubt as to their exercise of their right to self-determination, uh, one need only make a very brief comparative analysis. You have on one side, you have this principle of territorial integrity and this notion that officially the UN or others consider Nagorno-Karabakh to be a part of Azerbaijan, this concocted concept that Stalin in the 20s did uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, you look at the you look at the at the international principles of where sovereignty and territorial integrity is not assured, and when a state such as Azerbaijan abuses the rights of it, its inhabitants, and let's assume for a minute that Nagorno-Karabakh is Azerbaijan territory, as Azerbaijan says so. But when they go on and abuse the rights of its inhabitants, their inhabitants, when they commit atrocities against them, when they fail as to their responsibilities as a state to protect its own population, in fact, they persecute their population, the international community here had a duty, which it failed, to assist that state in fulfilling its duty. Azerbaijan's duty to, to protect and prevent and the international community's responsibility to take timely and decisive action through peaceful means, failing which, you know, it may use more forceful means in a manner consistent with international law. You know, if Indeed. a country is unable or unwilling to protect its civ civilians from mass atrocities, then the international community must must act swiftly to fill the protection void. You know, when we talk about genocide denied, is genocide repeated. When we talk about, oh, you know, 105 years ago, the Armenian genocide happened at the hands of Ottoman Turkey, you know, move on. Well, no, you see, the failure to recognize the genocide and the U.S. administration, the incoming one, uh, Biden administration, Biden-Harris, if they continue to fail the same as predecessors have, they are tacitly empowering the continuation of genocidal policies of former Ottoman Turkey, current Turkish Republic, now aided by Azerbaijan's despicable regime, uh, is the best I could put it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with renowned attorneys Garo Khazaryan and Karnik Kerkonian. Vic, if you, if you don't mind, can I just sure. interject one thing here just to kind of draw a linkage in what Gatto said, which is really important. And that is 
the, you know, he mentioned this in his opening uh, comments as well, and that is this the idea of this genocidal intent and the uh, and and how it's linked. We, we, we there's a there there are bridges. It's not just happened in 1915 then all of a sudden appears here. There were uh, the, what led to the movement, the the Nagorno-Karabakh movement, that eventually led to the uh, the, the declaration of independence uh, of uh, of Nagorno-Karabakh was that. There were attempts at ethnic cleansing and pogroms against Armenians in Baku, in the city of Baku, right. in the city of Sumgait, in the city of Kirovabad, which are which are towns in in the Republic of Azerbaijan where Armenians had, uh, lived and inhabited. There was cultural erasure in Nakhichevan, which is another uh, region that w- was inhabited by Armenians, but they were ethnically cleansed from the region, and any trace of their existence was systematically destroyed uh, by states. Exactly. So, you know, there are, it's not as if it's a, you know, 100-year-old story that all of a sudden pops up, but there are material yeah. links within an incidents that are all linked to one another that show that there is a state-sponsored and now regionally sponsored with the assistance of of uh, Erdogan, uh, the assistance that he provides to Aliyev, in order to undertake this agenda of ethnic cleansing. And the world, the global community, has an obligation. These are what are called ergo omnis obligations in, in Latin, and under international law, means that it applies to all. That these are these are so significant in order uh, the the obligation to stop this type of ethnic cleansing is so significant that all states are responsible. And yeah. I think this is where. Armenians, uh, you know, both in the Republic and in Artsakh, as well as outside, uh, have, uh, you know, looked out to the international community and said, hold on, the rhetoric and the action definitely does not match. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, Karnik, you mentioned earlier that uh, human rights transcends borders. Uh, you know, what happened here, gentlemen, is that there was a trade, a trade, and the trade was fuel in exchange for human lives. Azerbaijani fuel trumped the human rights of Armenians of the region. So all one needs to look at is go to the human rights defender of Armenia, uh, the ombudsman of Armenia, Arman Tatoyan, and look at the hard work that uh, Mr. Tatoyan does to highlight the daily atrocities and the years-long uh, disregard of human rights. Rick, I want to thank you before I before I run out of time with you. I want to thank you for your efforts in activism with respect to ensuring that the city of West Hollywood, California, recognize the independence of Artsakh, the Gorno-Karabakh Republic. And I want to thank all those who assisted you in that regard, including the city thank council you. members and all other communities and cities around the country that take the brave step and recognize the independence of Republic of Artsakh, as well as recognize the truth of the Armenian genocide. Absolutely, Garo. Thank you for saying that. I, you know, I share that with the five council members, especially my friend, council member Sepi um, Shine, who sponsored it, and Mayor Lindsay Horvath, who co-sponsored it. You know, and what happened in West Hollywood can happen anywhere in the country. Anyone can work with their local council members and, uh, make something like this happen because uh, it's one of the 
one of the only ways that we can ensure that the integrity of Artsakh and the people that live in it and their human rights are protected. Um, I want to go back and first say that both of you are basically, uh, without knowing, you're following my questions and agenda that's in front of me. So that's really great. And I'm uh, thank you, um, Garnik, for adding about a little bit context to what you know why September 27th happened. And for those listeners that are not familiar, after Stalin sort of arbitrarily uh, handed over the administrative control of Artsakh to Soviet Azerbaijan, uh, at the time it wasn't that pressing because all of the uh, republics were under Soviet rule. However, Armenians were being discriminated and there were attempts of extermination and for decades they appealed to Kremlin to secede and to gain their independence and that was uh, never really addressed until the late 80s when uh, finally Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh to Armenians, uh, decided to declare its independence and Azerbaijan did not um, really favor this and they carried out what uh, Garnik said, the pogroms, uh, which uh, resulted in death of about 30,000 Armenians, from mostly from Baku and surrounding cities. And uh, in that's that was about 1990, which uh, proceeded with a war, and that ended in 94 with a ceasefire. So there's a lot of, um, as both of our guests have said, there's a lot of uh, history and, and a lot of um, armenophobia that's uh, been there and it's it's there now. I mean, I saw a, uh, I'm sure both of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Azerbaijan just issued these stamps and one of the stamps is uh, an exterminator with one of those sort of like insect ext exterminating um, devices on the map of uh, Azerbaijan sort of spraying the Armenians off. Now, this is just egregious, the fact that country would issue such a stamp. I mean, they're basically saying that we are committing a genocide. They're admitting to it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with renowned attorneys Garo Khazaryan and Karnik Kirkonian. One of the things that Garo um, just started talking about, and I wanted to um, stop it for a sec because that's one of my main questions, and I would like you to elaborate, Garo, is the pipeline. You know, a lot of people um, have evaluated the situation and said one of the reasons uh, European nations, whether it's uh, Council of Europe or EU, whatnot, um, sort of turned a blind eye and was quiet, and even France, which I'll get to France later, but so many countries sort of didn't want to make waves with Azerbaijan and Turkey, was the pipeline that takes uh, oil from the Caspian all the way over to uh, Central and Western Europe. Um, so elaborate on that, if you will. Gara. Well, you know, the, 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 this is the, this is the, uh, this is the uh, sticking point that those of us who value human rights cannot overlook. Human rights are invaluable rights. You cannot put a price on a single solitary human life. And what the international community did was exactly that. They put a price on it. So in order to have Azerbaijani oil flow into Europe, and now Italy is uh, jumping on the bandwagon, what they did was they turned a blind eye, not to a war. What occurred between September 27 and November 9 of last year was not a war. It was a campaign of extermination. That's what it was. And to suggest now, 
post-so-called ceasefire, that Armenians in the region, in Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh, can live with meaningful degree of autonomy or safety under Azerbaijani rule, the horrific atrocities that have reported to have been committed against them just the last several months should constitute to the international community, if it has a conscience, that it is ample proof that continuing to suggest that this so-called internal self-determination and the participation and protection of Armenians in Azerbaijan is not tenable. It's just not tenable. Uh, and unless the international community really, really understands that fuel will dry up, oil will dry up, and then what? By the time they reverse course and start walking the walk instead of talking the talk of human rights, there will be no humans to defend their rights over there. Yeah, yeah, I'd true. like to add to that, if I may, Vic, um, uh, because as Gato said, you know, the, this, these energy politics have made a tremendous impact uh, in, in the region uh, for many years. Uh, and it's not just uh, oil, but it's also natural gas. And the timing of actual contracts being signed and natural gas and energy products being delivered to Europe is almost shocking. You know, it's a, it's. It can't. It cannot be a coincidence, if you will, that on December 31st, the uh, you know the the first uh, shipments of, of natural gas through the southern gas corridor uh, reached Bulgaria. That the additional uh, pipelines uh, are planned and contracts for those signed to, to reaching Italy and and, and through uh, through the uh, through the Balkans further north. And what is what's shocking here is that we know this story, right? I mean, this is not a story that we we don't know. And I, I'm not talking about the energy contracts, but I'm talking about the idea of appeasement. We know this story. If we didn't learn it during the during the Armenian genocide, we should have learned it during World War II. We have outright statements from from the from the governments, from the head of governments, and and state institutions, as you mentioned, with the postal stamps, for example, but. But additionally, outright statements by notable figures in the Azerbaijani government, in the Turkish government, regarding their intention to eradicate uh, a, a group of human beings. And what do we do? We allow, we appease, and we, and for energy purposes or for whatever purposes, because there are, there are layers of that as well. Sure. But we know that appeasement doesn't work. We know that what works is to draw a red line draw a red line and bring rogue states and because that is what azerbaijan is and that is what turkey is rogue states into compliance with international norms that govern our relations with human beings and this is where i feel as if the impunity that we have allowed is going to bite humanity back and unfortunately we did not learn this lesson because we are, uh, we get, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, we get drunk with the happiness that we get for, it's essentially diversifying, when I say we, I mean in the West, of diversifying our energy resources and things of that nature without realizing the long-term, the long-term effect. Looking back, everybody would say that, you know, combating Nazi aggression is a good thing. We're dealing with rogue states in the region. If, 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 uh, if Nagorno-Karabakh is not an example, like you said, Vic, you, all you have to do is look around the region. Yeah. They are, you know, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Karnik, you know, it's like, uh, it, it has to be said. It's the enablers, such as 
so-called NGOs, international institutions, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, when when they issue reports that are woefully inadequate, they 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 counsel calm on both sides when one side is just uh, going uh, all the way to the extreme of annihilation of the other. Uh, they talk about things from both sides of their mouth. You know, the thing is, the Azerbaijani government is a hereditary dictatorship. It's run by the son of a former dictator, uh, has, re- has steadfastly refused entry for UNESCO and other international inspectors to view sites. We're going to Julfa Cemetery site. We're going to, uh, you know, different communities within the area where desecration of cultural heritage sites, churches, cemeteries are taking place. And let me just be clear about one thing. This is not a he said, she said discourse. This is not an Armenian-American Garo or Armenian-American Karnig or Vic saying it. This is a narrative of accusation and denial where Azerbaijani dissident intellectuals in Azerbaijan have fearlessly criticized their own authoritarian regime for Mm -hmm. acts of cultural vandalism, and they have been imprisoned for it over the years. This is not something that the international community uh, can just ignore. They can ignore for so long, but blood is on everybody else's hands. I'm talking international community governments, and international community, so-called NGOs. Absolutely. Well said. And This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with renowned attorneys Garo Khazaryan and Karnik Kirkonian. I, for one, to be honest with you, after reading some of the reports from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, I've kind of given up on them because that... Uh, both sidism, or sometimes called false uh, balance in journalism, is just uh, absurd. It's um, just can't even defend it. It's laughable. And UNESCO. You know, the, the hum- the human, sorry, the human rights defender of Armenia just issued a report uh, a few hours ago where it's the evidence of the deeply rooted hatred and enmity towards Armenians in Azerbaijan is so prevailing. I mean, there are quotes by a member of a bar association of Azerbaijan where it is quoted, Armenian women and Armenian children should be killed. Surviving Armenians must be killed and tortured before killing. Their human uh, rights I do not commission. Feel sorry for Armenian child. The best Armenian child is a dead Armenian. Uh, yeah. I can go on, but I won't. Yeah, no, I, I saw about a month ago a tweet from their human, uh, human rights parliamentarian or some sort of a commissioner or such that was, I don't remember the wording, but it was something like, uh, we should just get rid of all Armenians. Um, I thought that was just disgusting. And the fact that uh, Twitter allowed that to remain, that's a whole other subject we can talk about. I want to get to a solution because I want us to end on solution. But there are a couple of questions that I have, quick ones perhaps. One is that Turkey, I don't think anyone questions this anymore, that this was a proxy war for Turkey vis-a-vis Azerbaijan, uh, Turkey being a, a so-called NATO ally to the U.S. What was, I feel like uh, NATO was a de facto enabler or de facto even participant in this. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, I think, I think that, well, first of all, to answer your question very directly, um, I would go so far as to say that 
that it wasn't merely an enabler. It was it actually had con uh, command and control of the war effort, uh, mm -hmm. of the narratives. Azerbaijan, quite frankly, would not have been able to uh, to have the success that it did in this war without the the active involvement of Turkey and its own recruitment. Turkey's right. recruitment of of mercenaries, paid mercenaries from Syria. So it, it's. I think that it's an understatement to say that uh, that Turkey enabled. Turkey ran this war. Turkey ran this war the way it run it has run the war in other places, like you mentioned, Vic, in the region, mm -hmm. um, for its strategic purposes. One of which is a very clear one that Azerbaijan shares, and that's the eradication of Armenians. To understand what the plan forward is, what the plan should be going forward, I think we have to to understand that that the threat posed to the Armenians of Artsakh and the Armenians in the region generally, because I'm talking about within the Republic of Armenia proper, is an existential one. Genocide doesn't happen in a moment. Genocide happens over time. Ethnic cleansing happens over time. And the way it happens, the methods that are used are complex. They are layered. They are broad. So um, until we can understand as an international community that there is a predetermined plan to exterminate Armenians from this region, we will not be able to understand what the solutions are going forward because the basis of our understanding would be faulty. There is no parity here. The Armenians do not have a, uh, a Turkophobia campaign where they're trying to exterminate the, the nearly 100 million uh, Turks, 80, 85 million that exist in, in Turkey proper. And then you have the uh, essentially what's become the satellite country of Turkey, Azerbaijan, with another 10 million. Armenians don't have a plan to exterminate them. It, the, the same can't be said for Azerbaijan and Turkey, who clearly do have one that they've announced and that they have continued to it. So the, the way forward is going to have to use as its underpinning an appreciation of the fact that the Armenians of the region are under an existential threat of extermination. Once we understand that, then the international community and the obligations that are imposed on the international community, for such as the right to protect, the right to intervene to protect, mm -hmm. the right to maintain the, the indigenous cultural presence of Armenians in the region and to protect that in a, from a security setting, as well as in the long term, to create institutions and to create a resolution of the conflict that respects that, that underpinning, that we have to combat the existential threat. We have to change the rhetoric. The Azerbaijan and Turkey need to be taught that you cannot teach armenophobia to grade schoolers and expect the outcomes to be different. This is a complicated undertaking, but it is one that the international community needs to be engaged in, because if it's not engaged in it, we will see the extermination of Armenians from the region. That is and, and, That will happen. Yeah. I believe that. And that's a good segue to my next question, because of all the different countries, France was the most local. You know, the French Assembly called on the, the, French, the French government to, to recognize the independent Republic of Artsakh. Uh, they voted on it, and then they sent it to the French Senate, uh, which too voted to have France recognize the independent uh, Republic of Artsakh. Where are we with France right now? Well, let me, let me just jump in and say this. Look, whether it's France, as far as I'm concerned, this is my personal opinion, whether it's France, whether it's any other European country or the United States, uh, maybe I'm a little bit, a bit uh, too harsh, but mm -hmm. I'm going to say it. To me, it's all lip service. You can recognize, yeah. that's the first step, but you are, uh, for crying out loud, 
you are a member of the OSCE. And, you know, the, the slew of disappointments that the people of Armenia and Arsakh have endured the not only this past decade, but more importantly, these past several months, are coming at the hands of the people that are uh, ruling the uh, onslaught onto, against Armenians with, with European leaders and American leaders, to be fair, are shaking hands and doing photo ops and just paying lip service. Uh, lip service to a country which, with an iron fist, reminiscent of the days of the Iron Curtain, is going about doing its thing. You know, today's Artsakh Nagorno-Karabakh is the 20th century South Africa. The only difference is the discrimination was against people of color in South America, uh, South Africa. Today, the discrimination and the slighting is based on race, race or ethnic origin, that of the Armenians. Yeah, I have been speaking, and Carnegie has, daily with Armenia, daily with the uh, Armenian human rights defender. And I can attest that through our conversations and discussions and meetings online, that the generation there, the young generation and the old alike, they are determined and committed to making that region a better, better, safer region. And they are willing to fight for their right to exist uh, with democratic norms of, and strengthening of their statehood and guaranteeing a better future for themselves. But you know what? That spirit, that same spirit has to be lived daily by the countries such as France. It's not enough to recognize independence. It's not enough even to recognize uh, the genocide. Those are starting points. There need to be measures. And you know what the greatest measure is? Sanctions, real sanctions. Mm -hmm. You know, you sanction somebody in such a way that they feel it. We talk about, oh, let's sanction Iran. Let's sanction this country. Let's sanction that country. Sanction Azerbaijan. Sanction Azerbaijan. State Department of the U.S., and then we'll talk. Right, which Pompeo, think, Pompeo was as useless as they come when he came to this. I think. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with renowned attorneys Garo Khazarian and Karnik Karkonian. Yeah, and if I could jump in real quickly here, Vic, I think something Garo just said I think is really, really important when we're looking at uh, the role of, let's say, France in particular or the U.S., particularly the OSCE uh, co-chairs, which is the internationally, uh, sorry, the U.N. Security Council sanctioned regime or apparatus for finding a final solution to the to the uh, to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Uh, and what he said was that uh, they're good starting points. And I think that's what solutions can't be forged in a vacuum. The the rhetoric that we hear out of France has an important element, and that perhaps is to remind the world that there is a history that comes prior to the conflict. We cannot look at the conflict in some sort of vacuum and say, well, these two sides are warring over. That's not the situation. There, as Gatto had mentioned, there was a referendum where 95 plus percent of the people of Nagorno-Karabakh expressed their right towards self-determination. There are democratic institutions created, elections that take place. These are principles that are very dear to Western political thought, to the manner in which the West has organized itself since the Westphalian period, right? I mean, these are liberal democratic principles that have been exercised by the Artsakh Armenians for 27 years. 
they have elected representatives, they have political parties, they have uh, government institutions, and they and that's based uh, on a referendum, which is the the purest form of uh, of essentially democratic expression. So we have to build on those principles uh, and realize that any solution has to be understood in the context of the historical and political framework that has existed, not just at the moment, but mm-hmm. over time. And those approaches perhaps are, are assisted by, let's say, the, the rhetoric that comes out of France, because it's almost as if they, that there is a conscience here, for example. And I do think that they have uh, a value, but I tend to agree with, with, uh, with Gatto with respect to the rhetoric alone is not enough. Those things need to be translated into negotiation frameworks. They need to be integrated into solution models that say, well, to, to combat an existential threat, we can't just draw lines and say these people should go. You, you, can't, you can't put people who's, you know, and I, and I say this not for the sake of, uh, of, of let's say, emotional uh, favor, but you, you can't take the, the mother or the father of, of, of a young Armenian man who's, who's had his head sawed off on video and then circulated to scare uh, the rest, uh, you know, Armenians on social media. You can't have that person sit there and accept solutions that don't appreciate that gruesome detail. So let me and ask I think you that this: when it happens on oh, mass, we need to be mindful of that. You said so. And the reason this continues to happen, gentlemen, is because, for example, when Turkey left the ruins of the city, ancient Armenian city of Ani. Uh, a city of 1,001 churches, uh, to the fate of time, uh, that was clear neglect and indifference. When Turkey turns the majestic Hagia Sophia church into a functioning mosque, that is abuse and cultural appropriation and erasure. But you cannot take one's symbol and turn it into your symbol. Show me where has any Armenian community taken a mosque and turned it into a church. No, on the contrary. Karnig and I were both in, in the city of Shushi, which they call Shusha, uh, and the mosque there was renovated by the Armenians of that region, Correct. renovated uh, to the umpteenth degree. You know, there is a bright line between abuse and neglect. And the, and the bottom line is the international community has allowed abuse to go on by its neglect. So let me ask you this, because I want to spend the last couple of minutes on solution and the road ahead. We have a new administration. You have a new Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken. What can they do? Blue sky? What's, what's the most desirable thing that uh, President Biden can do? Uh, whether it be, of course, he said that he's going to encourage the uh, OSCE men's group to re-engage, but... Aside from that, what, what, what would be the blue well, sky start, wish? President Biden can start by keeping his word, unlike his predecessors, who each said, and he in turn, President Biden said, that when elected, I will recognize the Armenian genocide. He should start. That's the, as we've said now over and over again, that's the starting point. Sure. You start. Regardless of what shenanigans Erdogan of Turkey is going to pull, 
you should start there and remember that that is the same person who came to Washington, D.C. and ordered his goons, his so-called bodyguards, to attack the peaceful American demonstrators that were on the sidewalks while his caravan went by. He should start there. In terms of, in terms of uh, solutions, once you recognize, you know, recognizing the problem is the first step. You recognize the problem. The problem is you're enabling uh, a tyrant, and in this case, two tyrants, to go on because you're not calling them to task. You're ignoring history. You start by recognizing history, and you do not pay lip service or attention to lip service coming back at you in terms of threats or recalling ambassadors or the like. You put your money where your mouth is. You walk the walk. So what would that I look like? That, would he call I up? think I could put... Go ahead. Yeah, I can put some. Yeah, I can put some contours on that. I think that you know, first of all, in terms of negotiations, we have to realize that this uh, the same uh, approaches will only yield the same results. Right. We have to have, as you know, it, the Biden administration needs to approach the issue with a little bit more bravery, with a little bit more fundamental understanding of the fact that. One solution that will not work because historically it has failed to work is the subjugation of Armenians in any manner, in any manner, to Turkish or Azeri authority or rule. We know that there is a historical timeline of events that prove that that doesn't work. That right. is not a solution. What that is, is a, uh, is a, uh, is a result. Yeah, it is a death sentence, and that's why I said that the the formative understanding needs to be that uh, that we are approaching this from an existential threat. So we cannot impose a solution that sounds good, you know, in dealing, for example, you know, these aren't this isn't Spain and France with a common border. That's not what we're dealing. These aren't that those types, uh, you know, the Azeri right. handling of the issue has not been one that is a European approach, if you will. So the subjugation of of Armenians to Azerbaijani or Turkish authority in any way has to be off the table because if the 44-day war proved anything, it is that there is not a qualm in their institutional mind that extermination of the Armenians is a desirable outcome. So that's not going to be changed. They're not going to change that so that in a matter of days or, or, or hours or a series of negotiations. So that needs to come off the table. So in terms of I think that the, the, the Biden administration's opportunity here is to really focus and project on the value of human rights. And it has that opportunity and uh, and to instill that element, right, this democratic, I mean, all the principles that the Artsakh uh, Armenians uh, demonstrate are liberal Western, th you know, this is an idea of self-determination democracy versus authoritarianism, as Gado was saying in Azerbaijan. Right. You know, you have the primacy of human rights over violence and resolving matters by force. These are themes that I think that the Biden administration, not I think, the Biden administration has spoken of in its, in its attempt to re-engage uh, the United States in the greater world. Uh, we have, you know, we've seen, you know, really kind of real about 180 degree turns, for example, on climate change, on a number of other issues. And we have an opportunity, uh, as the Biden administration does, to steer America 
in this region and other regions on that basis, on these American principles, right? Liberalism, the idea of, of human rights as the foundation and self-determination, civil and political rights. These issues are ones that we can that we can demonstrate to the world. The Biden administration can demonstrate to the world through the situation that we see in Arkansas. It has a very unique role in the resolution of this conflict. One of only three co-chairs of the uh, of the the Security Council sanctioned um, uh, process by which to resolve the conflict, and it and, and it shares, uh, I believe in the the under you know the deep kind of political and theoretical understandings that most Americans really believe in yeah. and and I think that the Biden administration has an opportunity to translate those core fundamental American and western beliefs in in democracy in the in the value of the individual um, over authoritarian rule in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict we can do well, that so Americans can do that we're we're running out and, of time and we're running out of time, so I want to uh, spend the last 30 seconds to ask both of you the same question, which is, um, are you optimistic? <laughs> uh, let me tell you this. Uh, I'll be optimistic when Azerbaijan's petrodollars that are used for lobbying and paying pundits and journalists and PR firms to promote its interests in, in the U.S. are put to a stop or are recognized for what it is. Uh, and I'll be optimistic when the United States government intervenes to uh, have the release of the prisoners of wars that are being tortured every day in Azerbaijan. That's when I'll be optimistic. Karnik? Um, I would say that uh, that the we are embarking, uh, as we know, in America on a new era of transparency. I believe that Amer the American people, when they are when the issues that have that have uh, scourge uh, the Caucasus are made transparent. I think the American people will know where to stand on this issue. When, as Gatto said, you know the uh, the caviar diplomacy that has taken place with Azerbaijan, paying off various uh, in governments uh, and NGOs to whitewash its campaign uh, against the Armenian people, is made uh, transparent. I think the American people will know where to land because I think fundamentally. We share uh, the principles that have really uh, led to the movement. Let's not forget, and I think it's really important to say this in closing, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, right, the, the arch enemy of the United States in terms of democracy and human rights, the fall of the Soviet Union, its immediate cause, maybe not the long-term cause, its immediate cause was the Gharapag movement. Right. The Gharapag movement, the Nagorno-Karabakh movement, is what brought down the Iron Curtain. It's the, it was the uh, immediate cause of that really monumental historic change in global relations. And yeah. we cannot abandon, we cannot abandon the brave people that said, you know what, it is not about authoritarianism. We, we have the right to, uh, to establish ourselves, to govern ourselves, to celebrate our indigenous culture on this land. And I think that the ability through Perestroika and Glasnost for these individuals to rise up to that to that call should will be applauded by the American people and should be applauded by the American people. And the more transparency we have, which is what you know the Biden administration has promised, and I'm pretty confident will deliver, is going to show the American people that where it where they need to sit on this issue. Well said. I like I like that you mentioned that part about the effect of the Nagorno-Karabakh movement on the fall of the Soviet Union. I have to uh, stop it there. Thank to thank both of you for 
Uh, it's really a great chat uh, for your time, your wisdom, very dense. I'm very grateful for that, uh, both to you, Garo and Garnik. Uh, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. Thank you for the opportunity, Vic. Keep up yeah. the good work. Thank you on the front lines of, uh, of the American public, and, uh, and we applaud you for your efforts. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. You just listened to my interview with acclaimed attorneys Garo Hazarian and Garni Kirkonian. I'm very grateful to have them on the show. Uh, thank you, Garo and Garnik, for, for your time. Much appreciated. Today, I'm going to read you three tweets from President Biden. The first one was right before he was officially the president. He wrote, Folks, this will be the account for my official duties as president. At 12.01 p.m. on January 20th, it will become at POTUS. Until then, I'll be using at Joe Biden. And while you're at it, follow at Flotus Biden, at Sen Kamala Harris, which I believe is now at VP, as well as at Second Gentleman and at Transition 46. The second tweet says, We are facing a historic moment in our nation's history, one that requires bold and swift action. That's why this week I took historic action to deliver relief to American families and address the challenges we face. The last tweet is simply this, I know times are tough, but help is on its way. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.